Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddham Dhammang Sanghang Namasami In some places it's traditional to begin a, some sort of talk like this with that chant or something similar to that. And I wasn't planning to do it, but it just came to me when I sat down, this sense of uh, something in the realm of paying homage. Homage to that which is worthy of respect. And that might mean so many different things to each one of us. But just to turn the heart in, in this way, however you might find to do it, to sort of bring forward into the mind and heart the sense that there might be something worthy of our respect, worthy to pay homage to maybe in our own heart. maybe somewhere else. For some reason I was thinking about the first time I came to IMS to sit a long retreat, which was very shortly after I started meditating at all. I think I may have said that. And it was in the fall like this for three months and I remember at some point, I remember a couple things. There was at one point where I, I was just struck that I loved the chance, the conditions that allowed me to live so carefully. It just really struck me. I loved being able to take so much care with my, the way I moved through the days. You know, that there was that sense of the, mo- the mindfulness is this kind of care. We take care of our life and we take care of everything around us when when we bring this kind of uh, attention. There's a caring quality there. Can you feel that? Do you feel that sometimes when you go about? And it just struck me. I, I feel like, I felt like I hadn't really lived with that kind of care in my life in some way. And I remember another point at that, that retreat, sitting somewhere, I think I was sitting in the dining room, it was open then, maybe having a hot drink, and I just felt so contented, this kind of deep contentment that seemed like something I also not wasn't sure I'd ever felt before. And it wasn't because 
at least in my judgment, my practice was going, I didn't know what I was doing from, <laughs> from my point of view. I mean, I may have reflected back later and realized maybe I wasn't the only person who'd never been mindful. But that was my feeling at the time. <laughs> but I just was so content to just be there putting in my time living carefully. I, I just loved it so much. For some reason in the last day or two coming in to the hall and I've been looking at the Buddha statue here behind me and I, I find it quite beautiful and inspiring. You may not. But I had this sense, oh, it looks as though it were carved out of a solid one big piece of wood. I don't know that that's true, but at least the main figure probably was and I thought I thought I had the thought that oh the the person who made that they just took away everything that wasn't the Buddha and I've heard that the sculptor uh, Michelangelo said that uh, carving the statue of David very famous uh, more than life-size statue he said it was easy you just took he just took away everything that wasn't David wasn't that statue. There's little evidence to suggest that he actually said that, but, <laughs> but uh, apparently I kind of looked it up. <laughs> I was trying to remember where that came from. And someone said, probably you never said that, but it's a nice, it's a nice image that the Buddha was always there. I have a friend who's, who I who's a yogi and someone I also teach with sometimes. And, and he taught me to carve wooden spoons in a particular way. And, and so it was, um, it's the same thing you have. A, so you don't, you just have a block. You don't like shape it down and get it as close to a spoon as you can and then finish it. You start with a branch or something and you just remove everything that isn't the spoon. And his attitude and what he, he, how he taught me and I, I used to, we used to sit together and carve. And he said the, the important thing was the, the chips and curls of wood that were being removed. It was like, that's, that's what I paid attention to, should pay attention to those creating those, those bits of wood. So it was very, very focused around the process of doing that. And the spoon was kind of a lucky accident. And his rule was that you could keep the first one you made, but after that you had to give any of them all away. And I've made a few of them. I can tell when my life is going well, I'll have time to carve spoons. It's all about the chips and curls of wood. And it seems to me we might be able to see our, something about our practice in this, with these images. Something about it seems maybe useful if we're kind of careful how we, how we form it in our minds or relate to it. But what if we take away everything 
that isn't enlightened in our heart and mind? What if that falls away? The veils and misperceptions and confusions that, that cover over the, the free mind, the awakened mind. Like clouds, you know, that get blown away from the sky and the sky is there and the sky was always there like the Buddha was always inside the block of wood. It didn't come into existence. We're revealing something that's already there and it's just one way to look at things. Maybe it's a way to point towards uh, what we call Nibbana or the realization of the unconditioned. If we removed all that is conditioned, everything that arises from a cause and passes away, then what's left? Something that was always already there. Can you feel how close that is? Sometimes I get just this feeling, oh, it's so close. It's closer to me than the inside of my eyelid. So delicate and close. But most of us, I think a lot of the time, we, if we have any relationship to the idea of this kind of realization or to the, even to the word Nibbana, We see it as something high and remote and far away. Apparently that word had a colloquial meaning of of cooling, like you let the rice nibbana till it was ready to eat. (laughs) So maybe it's just like really cooled out. (laughs) Maybe that's part of what that realization is. But we have this sense of it's, it's some vague thing there, far away, some undefined, unknowable kind of goal. And nobody seems to really want to talk about it directly. You know, like if we work hard enough, we might get it if we spend enough time in meditation or come to enough retreats like this. And there are the limitations of language that it's hard to define or somehow talk about something that is impossible to really talk about. All you can do is kind of allude to it or point at it indirectly, sometimes saying what it isn't or there's qualities that are there. I mean, think about how hard it is, how hard it would be or how hard it is to talk to someone about your experience in meditation. I mean, even in, we come into the practice meetings and and we have a lot of shared language and shared experience and, and, and that makes it somewhat possible, but the subtlety of our experience, we hardly get anywhere close to that really.
Or for example, if you wanted to describe, try to describe what it's like to eat a mango, a perfect ripe mango, to someone who had never heard of that fruit ever, no experience of it. And you could go on and on. Oh, the texture and the way it smells and and the flavor and the juiciness. And it's just, you could just talk about that for a long time. But until someone ate a mango, they wouldn't know. Or like, it's like reading the menu. If you read the menu, does that mean you know what that food tastes like? This is uh, some, something, uh, a little bit of uh, a short verse from, um, there's a, a text called The Questions of King Melinda. I can't remember, I hate to bother Brian. Do you know what century, maybe the seventh century? It's a, it's a question where um, this king, who I believe came from, um, you know, maybe from Greece even, it certainly came from, not from India. And he, he had this relationship with a, a sage, a monk named Nagasena. And he, there's this dialogues that are, are collected there. And this is from that. It's usually, he, he asks this kind of simple question, just one you know, short question. And um, this is one of the replies. So uh, King Melinda must have asked about Nibbana. And Nagasena said, just as space is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of birds, presents no obstacles, is endless. So also Nibbana is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of the noble, presents no obstacles, is endless. And in a discourse, uh, in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha is speaking to the Brahmin Kappa who has asked him a question. And the Buddha says, there is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nibbana. An island which you cannot go beyond. It sounds, to me, it's, it, it, they're beautiful images like space or this island, an island you can't go beyond, a place of non-attachment, non-possession, does not age, neither comes into existence nor passes out of existence. But language like this can reinforce this sense of 
of Nibbana as some vague thing, some beautiful island somewhere. Might someday get there. But what if it's here right now? Sometimes these images can inspire us, but they can also bring confusion into the heart. They may lead us looking, looking for some beautiful island somewhere far away, as though it's something we might attain in some future state of grace, or, or maybe it's only available to certain special beings. A number of years ago, it's, it's almost 20 years, that's hard to believe. The days, the time passes and it speeds up when you get a bit older. Seems to, the perception of time. Somehow the scientists say that, you know, time is, is not a fixed thing. And we see that in our experience, don't we? Sometimes a period of meditation lasts a really long time, doesn't it? Or sometimes it's just like that. But a lifetime goes by so quickly. Anyway, I was in Thailand and I was staying at uh, Wat Pananachat. And um, a, a Thai monk, and a uh, he was a monk in the Thai forest tradition, but he was um, someone who was born in England, I believe. His name was Ajahn Panyawado. And he, was, he ordained the year I was born, 1955. So he had been in robes for a long time. The, the, I met him a couple of years before he died. He died in 2004 at the age of 79. He was a student of a very famous uh, monk named Ajahn Mahabua. They lived at Wat Paban Tad. I had the chance to meet Ajahn Mahabua. I might have told you a little about him the other night if I hadn't run out of time. He was, uh, when I had the occasion to to be around when he visited the, the monastery that year, he he had so much energy and he was already 89 or 90 and he was zooming around the sala. It's a big open kind of pavilion where, where meals are taken and a lot of, that's kind of the life of the monastery happens in this big open pavilion, kind of the size of this hall or a little bigger and with a roof, but open on the sides and high benches where people can, the monks can sit in the monastery. And I just remember him Zooming all around the place, looking, you know, kind of looking behind things, I think checking to make sure it was kept clean, properly clean. He had, uh, yeah, this. So he was widely uh, understood that he was fully enlightened, but his energy was so um, different from some of people I met who also had that reputation, like Shweyu Min Sayadaw who was the teacher of uh, uh, Utejaniya. Some of you may have heard of Utejaniya or practiced with him. 
his teacher was Shoyu Min Sayadaw. And uh, I remember I had a chance to go and spend some time, uh, just ask, just me and him and someone translating, um, just to ask some questions. And, and it was like um, so still. There was a stillness that just filled the, the whole place. It was like um, deep in the ocean, maybe. Really different energy there. Anyway, Ajahn Panyawada, we got to go and spend time with him uh, talking Dhamma uh, every day for a couple of weeks. He was very generous with his with his time, and he. Someone gave me a book about him, uh, his life and his teachings. And uh, this is something from that book. He said, I'd say that Nibbana is already there in everybody. And everybody knows it, but they just don't recognize it. Intuitively, we know that there's something other than this world, but we don't know what it is. So we search for it, and because we have an array of senses to work with, we tend to focus out in the direction of the senses, looking there for true happiness. Of course, that's searching in the wrong direction. One of my teachers also from the Thai forest tradition, he once said, we're swimming in Nibbana with our faces pushed up against the Buddha but we just don't see it. That same sense, it's already here. But the sense that we we have these senses and we, we tend to look out through them and search out in that way and that maybe that's looking in the wrong direction in some way. because we're looking at these conditions that are transient and subject to arising and passing away. And this sense that they somehow could lead us to freedom. And in a way they can, because they show us what it isn't. So it's not that it's, there's not that direct connection there. Have you noticed, do you have a sense for just how radical these teachings and this practice are? This is a radical shift in how we look at things. And it asks that we radically transform our usual way of looking at everything and question and release our attachment to all of our fixed ideas about the nature of reality and who and what we hold ourselves to be, think we are. Do you have a sense for that? Just the radical shift in perspective that is is required in order to really walk this path. And we, maybe we, we discover that on a deeper and deeper level, I think, as all the things we, 
you know, we, we thought we had figured something out and then, no, not quite yet. <laughs> and then we keep looking. One way we can think about meditation is that it's this, this training. We're training the mind and heart. We're training and encouraging and nurturing this quality of mindful awareness. in order to see reality more and more clearly. It's this beautiful tool, mindfulness. With mindfulness, everything is possible. Without it, nothing is possible. Can you feel it right now? You could ask the question, is there awareness here? You can't ask that question and not say yes. And it's so simple, it's, it's not special in some ways, and yet it's, it's profoundly, the potential there is profound. And over time we get, begin to trust mindfulness and this capacity we have to be aware more than the the passing show of changing experiences and phenomena. We we open to things just as they are and release the need to judge them or latch onto them, take them personally, claim ownership of them. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, he's talking about the the image, this metaphor of the island that you cannot go beyond that I read uh, a little earlier. He said, the metaphor of the island that you cannot go beyond is so very powerful because it points to the principle of an awareness that you can't get beyond. It's very simple, very direct, and you can't conceive it. You have to trust it. You have to trust the simple ability that we all have to be fully present and fully awake. The way of mindfulness is the way of recognizing conditions just as they are. We simply recognize and acknowledge their presence without blaming them or judging them or criticizing them or praising them. We allow them to be the positive and the negative both. And as we trust this way of mindfulness more and more, we begin to realize the reality of the island that you cannot go beyond. Now there's a way that language is used in that tradition that, that you might not find other places. But it points to something beautiful, some beautiful possibility there and, and points to the power of mindfulness. And so we're training that capacity. We're, um, say we're encouraging, nurturing the conditions for it to arise. And we train it to see below the surface of things. There's all the different contexts at the senses the sights and sounds and sensations and 
thoughts and moods and tastes and touches. They all have their particular manifestations and flavors and they show up and they seem really different. But in another way, they share some common characteristics. They're subject to change as we We've been saying these over and over. They're subject to change. They're not permanent in that way. There's an unreliability to them because of their nature to change. And there's a a kind of corelessness or an uncontrollability that characterizes all of these things. They all, this is, these are true, uh, aspects of any experience that we might have in our daily goings around. I came across a favorite uh, book of mine. I remember thinking this is, goes back a long time now, but I remember at one point thinking if I, if I had to, if I were going to be stranded somewhere and I had to pick one Dharma book, I would pick this one. It's called Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree by Ajahn Buddha Dasa. And it's not a very big book, so maybe I should have picked a thicker one. <laughs> but it's very rich. And, and Ajahn Buddha Dasa was a very beloved teacher in the Thai forest tradition. He was kind of within something that's radical <laughs> to begin with. He was kind of radical within that in many ways, a lot of the way he taught. He said uh, in, his, in that book, he summarized the entirety of the Buddha's teaching in four Pali words. And you know, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the Pali Canon, it's, there's a lot of pages there, big volumes, and it's a lot. There are people in parts of the world, for example, in Burma, who it's said they have memorized the entire Tipitaka. That's like memorizing a big, big set of encyclopedias or something. But sometimes I remember asking certain of my teachers a question and they would pause and I could see them kind of rolling through and then they would answer based on something that they had memorized in some sutta somewhere. That's amazing. I have not memorized the Tipitaka. But anyway, these, these, this short phrase, sabbe dhamma nalam abhinivesaya. Sabbe means all, like we say, sabbe sata, bhavantu sukitata, may all beings be happy, have happiness. Dhamma, in this case, it means kind of things. Nalang means should not, and abhini vesaya means 
be, should not be clung to, be clung to. So uh, it means nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And our Buddha Dasa, um, he extends it and he says, nothing should be clung to as I, as me, as mine. And he, he emphasized the power of this. He said, whoever had heard this, had heard all of the teachings, whoever had put it into practice had practiced all of the teachings and whoever had received the fruits of practicing this had realized all possible fruits of the practice. And this seems like maybe it's drawn from a, a sutta in, in the middle length discourses. Um, the same phrase in Pali shows up there and uh, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, he translates those words as nothing is worth adhering to. And in this, in this sutta, it's said that uh, Saka, who is uh, king of, of the devas on one of the deva plains, he shows up and comes to the Buddha fairly regularly to get teachings. And he, he asks this question, Venerable Sir, how in brief is a practitioner liberated through the destruction of clinging? And the Buddha says, here, ruler of gods, a practitioner has heard that nothing is worth adhering to. When one has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, one directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, one fully understands everything. I, I kind of like the word adhering. It's, it's like, don't glue yourself to it as the sticky, gluey, feeling, don't get adhered to anything. We had a, an interesting discussion with Joseph Goldstein. He stopped by at lunchtime. And uh, I don't remember exactly. It was, it was some discussion about some of the texts and different points of view on some of the things that were, uh, would be found in texts like the Visuddhimagga or um, some of the commentaries, different perspectives on how insight arises and the role of samadhi and concentration. It was, it was interesting, especially because some of the people involved have really brilliant minds, which I don't particularly have, as far as I can tell in my exploration of it. But I remember there seemed to be some some different views were being expressed and they were, they were, I won't say they were clung to, but they were um, expounded with mm, vim and vigor. <laughs> Would you say it was kind of like that? <laughs> <laughs> Brian was there. And, um, and then at some point, it was like Joseph said, well, you know, as it's all comes down to liberation through non-clinging. And we were actually all set to, we were going to like go away for a couple of weeks to some, um, you know, nice desert island and, and continue the discussion. Um, you know, Joseph said we could, we could have a long talk if we set it up in some really nice place. But he was teasing, of course. But, but we came to that. That, that 
you know, it didn't really matter as long as it was heading you towards freedom from non-clinging, that this this was the heart of things. It's kind of that same message that uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa says there. Joseph is fond of saying, it doesn't matter to what you do not cling. And I like to say it, and it doesn't matter when you don't cling. But it's good to not cling ever at all. I don't know how much we've mentioned the five aggregates. Have we talked about the aggregates much? They're called the five aggregates subject to clinging. And one of the main ways that the Buddha talked about how clinging shows up is in this, in the teachings on the five aggregates there. There's a lot of them threaded throughout the suttas. And, and there's also ways that he uses this teaching to kind of unpack and deconstruct our notions and concepts around self. And I feel kind of badly because I I imagine when I say words like the five aggregates, some of you may sigh (laughs) inwardly. You know, there's another of these seemingly endless lists. (laughs) And if you're a good Buddhist, you need to memorize it. But it's actually interesting and it's useful practical framework for understanding what's being pointed to with this this idea of um, liberation through non-clinging, Understand, understanding clinging, because that's how things are released, is through understanding, not through some cutting away or, or chopping off or something. Apparently the word aggregate was, uh, is the, is, well, it's a translation of a, a word in Pali that is, is uh, kanda, skanda in Sanskrit. And apparently it literally means something like a heap or a bundle or a pile. And I guess it was commonly used at the time of the Buddha. Unlike the word aggregate, the only way I've ever heard aggregate used is in geology as a kind of rocks. There are certain rocks that are called aggregates. But I, I don't tend, I haven't used it just, you know, hanging out with my friends very much. You know, hey, what about the aggregates? But um, but I have this feeling that, that maybe the people who translated some of these early texts chose the word aggregate because it sounds kind of sophisticated and, and uh, you know, like the teaching on the five heaps of stuff <laughs> doesn't have the same thing as, as the five aggregates. It just doesn't sound quite so, so cool. But the Buddha lived in this agrarian society and a lot of the people he taught had been or were still farmers and herds, herds, herders. And um, in my imagination, I think, you know, the word kanda might have been used to talk about a bundle of rice straw or or a pile of leaves or something or a bundle of, of uh, twigs and sticks that one was collecting for firewood. 
these five aggregates are rupa, which is material form. That's called a Buddha rupa, a Buddha form. Vedana, which we've talked about, this feeling tone. Sanya, which is perception. Samkara, which are translated as mental or volitional formations. And vijnana, which is consciousness. And so you might recognize some of these things have some crossover with other lists. So material form we look at usually in meditation because it's right here, always available. We, we look at the body, but materiality is all physical matter. So it's, it's the direct experience of the body as this dance of stance of changing sensations arising and passing, movement and heat and cold and vibration and tension and pressure and hardness. And you could say these behavioral properties that characterize material stuff. And, and it's the same in the body as it is in the world around us. And material form also shows up in terms of these sense bases. So the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the, be- the mind, and their information, or at least the five, the mind will set aside. So the eye receiving light and uh, shows up as sees form and color and the nose smell and ear sounds. And that's also part of the rupa. And then later now we've talked a lot, the rest, the other four are, are mental they rise in the mind, so this feeling tone arising in the mind. Perception, uh, some teachers call it cognition, is is the mental factor. I think we've talked about this, that based in part on memory and uh, associations and things, it names objects. Samkara are mental formations, sometimes volitional formations. Um, the mental energy that leads to actions of body or speech. So it includes desires and emotions and the roots of wholesome and unwholesome actions and uh, things that give rise to action of body and speech. And then uh, vijnana, vijnana, consciousness, is this kind of basic bare knowing Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it the light of awareness which makes all experience possible. And one way we could we could see it is in terms of these sense bases or sense doors. So when there's contact at the eye, seeing consciousness arises at the ear, hearing consciousness. So I think Matthew talked about contact and knowing a bit last night in some way. So these... Uh, consciousness arising out of contact through the senses. And so these these five heaps of stuff make up our entire experience. The components or processes of our experience. Our friend and colleague Andrea Fella sometimes calls them the tumbling on of our being which I, I like that that way of talking about it because it it points to this changing flow like nature of these. 
you know, if we look carefully at our experience, there is this sense like water tumbling over rocks in a stream. And it also points to the fact this tumbling on, it's this, these are, are natural processes. They're not something we do or, or create. They're just a way of looking at what's just happening. They're just a, a description of nature. That's all we're doing here, do you know? We're just observing nature. We're observing nature and we're giving back to nature what we have mistakenly appropriated as our own. And the Buddha said in in his teaching on the Four Noble Truths, one part of that, he said, uh, these are called the five aggregates subject to clinging. He said, in brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. And so there's this pointing to they're subject to clinging. When there's no clinging, there's no suffering is, is implied in that that direct relationship there. And so this, this teaching and understanding exploration of the five aggregates sits right on, I say it's sitting right on the cusp between the first and second noble truth. So this, the first noble truth, uh, there is suffering, the nature of suffering to be, um, to be seen. And then, uh, seeing the cause of suffering. So it's right there between understanding suffering and its cause. But our, 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 our mind tends to weave all these things together. It's hard to pull them apart, especially if we're not used to even thinking or seeing in this way. So let's do a little meditation here. I don't want to have just too many words. I'm a little concerned about too many words here. But just sit, you don't have to change your posture. Mindful in any posture, mindful at any speed, but let your attention come to your hands. And maybe you're sitting with the hands resting one and the other. And if they're separated, maybe just pick one of them. That would be better for me, but it might be fine for you to have the tension in both hands if they're separate, or perhaps one is resting in the other. And so you can, we can all feel our hands touching, can't we? Or one of them, if we're just attending to one. So if I ask, can you feel your hands touching? Yes. But what, what is that experience? So I feel this pressure and warmth and a kind of tingling and a pulsing kind of pulsing or and a fine vibration coming sometimes. And you, you could say whatever you're noticing. So that's the direct, the textures there, softness, smoothness, roughness, whatever, all the things one might notice in that direct experience. 
So we can't actually experience hand. We can experience all those things, warmth and coolness and pressure and, and tingling and vibration. Hand is a concept. It's, it's a construct in the mind created on, uh, it's the function of perception that names it as hand. And, and it's useful because hands are, boy, they can do so many things. But it's helpful and good to know the difference between the concept and the direct experience. So in meditation, we're really interested in that direct experience. That just right there, that touching. These concepts don't change. There's no change in hand. It, it get, becomes fixed as a thing. But then the direct experience is is nothing but change, right, isn't it? Mm. It doesn't matter if I don't finish. So this is the tumbling on of our life is this, this flow and conditioned interweaving of of these five aggregates. I'll I'll just use a a simple example. Just in, let's say that we come down for, we come for breakfast. It's a cool rainy day like it was a few days ago. And and so the consciousness is there in the bare knowing of experience. And there's there's a material form, the rupa khanda, contact at the body. There are coldness and wetness and colors and shapes and sounds of the rain. And then we might feel it as pleasant or unpleasant or neither of those. So there's Vedana, it's just right there. It's not fancy or special. And then all the while perception has been naming stairs and doors and people and things and and then thoughts maybe have been arising, you know, that they should have built some covered walkways and put in some handrails for some of us who, who need a little extra help when it's rainy. And, and, the, and we're going to leave some helpful notes, really, really long ones, and, uh, and go online and shop because we just don't have any good rain gear. And so, so there's these thoughts of things we're going to do. So meditation, we can see this this tumbling on and the way these things are intertwined and woven together. That's our life. The Buddha suggested that we should uh, contemplate this, at least in the Satipatthana Sutta. The aggregates are in the fourth establishments of mindfulness under dhammas. One contemplates these. So for rupa khanda, material form, such is material form, such is its arising, such is its passing away. Very simple. I love that. So we see them for what they are, and we see, oh, they're of the nature to arise and pass. So it, it kind of cuts through our tendency to grasp them. So I want to say, I'll try to say a few more things. 
Um, I, there's this really this way that Bhikkhu Analaya speaks about, um, you know, so these are called the five aggregates subject to clinging. So we tend to identify and hold on to them as somehow being I, as me, as mine. We claim ownership of them or we identify with them as who I am in some way. He says this that I think is really a great way of looking at these. He says the clinging to them are, he calls them embodiments of the notion I am. So this is the the way that kind of the feeling of, of self gets kind of picked apart. So he uses the word cognition for perception. So sanya, those are two different translations. Uh, He prefers cognition. From the unawakened point of view, the material body is where I am. Feelings are how I am. Cognitions are what I am, is perception. Volitions are why I am, acting, doing things. And consciousness is whereby I am experiencing. In this way, each aggregate offers its own contribution to enacting the reassuring illusion that I am. I think that's such a cool way of putting it. We can see see this, you know, we tend to locate ourselves somewhere within the body. (laughs) That's where I am. feeling, tone, vedana, how I am. If it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, then I'm happy or unhappy or bored and indifferent, maybe. How I am. Perception takes what I am by creating concepts like, just like body and arm and hand and things, and and things in the world around us. These mental formations why I am in terms of actions. So in response to the contacts and the feelings and the perceptions, then there's actions we decide. It's like the mind deciding what I'm going to do about all this to fix it maybe. Why I am and consciousness that I am supporting evidence that I am or whereby I am as Bhikkhu Analayo said. So that's sort of our last, we'll retreat there we might let the others go away but this this sense i i am because i am experiencing these things i know things so i i must i must exist <laughs> in some way the buddha said he tried to, in different ways, pointing out our, our misperception, our fallacy. He said, Bhikkhu's form is not self. Were form self, then this form would not lead to affliction. And one could say of form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But since it is not self, it does lead to affliction. And one cannot say of form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. And he goes through the other aggregates in the same way. You know, so we we don't get to say let let the body not age, let it not get sick, tendency to, to have afflictions, let it be young and beautiful all the time, let the mind only experience exalted, beautiful mind states. 
you know, we, we, if we spend any time at all, none of it is, is amenable to our will, is it? We are holding out some hope. And maybe we have this, oh, one of these nights, like tomorrow night, we're going to get this secret teaching where we are going to be able to make it be the way we want it to be and stay like that. And so this, this sense of the aggregates is this manifestation of the tumbling on of our existence in this, this way they weave together and, and, you know, it's everything is in there. And, and this, is, this is part of what we're exploring in, what we're doing in many ways could be said of, uh, as, as exploring what it means to be human, what it is to be human. It's the tumbling on of these processes of the aggregates. It's one way to look at it. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, if we care to understand ourselves, what we have to understand is the five aggregates. To fully understand the five aggregates means to see them as they really are. And this means to see them in terms of the three characteristics of existence. That is impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness or corelessness. So we, we see, I kind of can can pick apart the feeling, you know, we start to see that that self is this feeling that arises in response in relation to these these aggregates, at least one way, in response to form, to feeling, perception, formations in the mind, consciousness. And we see that none of it is personal, it's just nature. There's nothing to cling on to, nothing to hold on to as I, as me, as mine. So then there's this reality of liberation through non-clinging. In some, some way, we come closer and closer to that. We clear away the veils of, uh, that, that cover up realization. I'll end with uh, this kind of famous uh, words of the Buddha. And this was, uh, he said this while he was in the Jetta's Grove, the Jettavana. Do you remember that story about that monk and, and his attendant who spent their days in the Jettavana? What do you think, bhikkhus, practitioners, If a person were to gather or burn as do as they like with the grass, twigs, branches, and leaves here in Jetta's Grove, would the thought occur to you, it's us that this person is gathering, burning, or doing with as they like? No, Lord. Why is that? Because those things are not our self, nor do they belong to our self. Even so, practitioners, whatever isn't yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. And what isn't yours? Form isn't yours. Feelings are not yours. Perceptions, mental fabrications, consciousness, none of them are yours. Let go of them. Your letting go of them will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. So hopefully coming back around to this idea, nothing is to be 
clung to in any of the ways that clinging might happen. So I offer these reflections for you this evening and uh, maybe something in there is of use. I, I offer it to you in that way and, and if none of it was, it's over now <laughs> and you'll be okay. <laughs> you made it through. So uh, let's have a moment or two of quiet opening the mind and heart in a simple way to the way it is right now. Maybe feeling the proximity of awakening of the unconditioned that we're swimming in, like the ocean. It's right here right now. Maybe much simpler than we've tended to think it is. not clinging to anything in the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.